arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Hello everybody and welcome to Fitting on the Air, episode 2 of A World Without Her. Peter is in another world, not of his making. Peter looks for his friend Melvin, his friend from work at RICOM, but Melvin's local number isn't listed. Peter lives in a trailer with his wife Roberta Joe, who justifiably, given the character of the Peter in this reality, hates his guts. But his son Curtis begins to connect with this improved version of his father. Peter will find out that Melvin is alive. When he learns the truth about Jeannie, he is at first stunned. Let's get into episode two of A World Without Her by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter seven. Alone inside the trailer, Peter saw the sawtooth clouds hovering above the rugged Ganankay ridges. Tears welled in his eyes as he accepted Ricardo's orchestrated charade. In the late afternoon light, he weighed the possibility that Jeannie might have died. Maybe she lived in Westerly or possibly in another reality, existing side by side with this world. Roberta Joe, according to Curtis, worked at Stebbins & White, a factory producing defense instruments located on the exact acreage as the RICOM complex in the other reality. Peter rummaged through the trailer after she left for work. He found an old army uniform and discharge papers in a bedroom closet. Records of his benefits at the welding shop and an unemployment card expired last January were tucked in a file folder atop the kitchen cabinets. Yet he remembered nothing about his past here. His memory had just begun when he had awakened in bed with Roberta Joe. He turned on the small TV set on the counter and made himself some coffee. Finding Melvin in this reality might help him to locate Jeannie. No listing for a Melvin Bornstein appeared in the phone book. Maybe access to a national listing of phone numbers on a computer would help him find both Jeannie and Melvin. Just after five o'clock, Curtis's motorcycle engine idled outside the window. He put down the kickstand and secured the helmet on the seat. With cigarettes rolled up in his t-shirt sleeve, he bopped up the trail of steps. Peter opened the door. Hey, Dad, what are you doing here? I live here, right? Yeah, but you're usually at the lodge hall by this time of day, putting them down. Listen, Curtis, do you know a Melvin Bornstein? Nope. Curtis took a can of beer out of the refrigerator. Beer? No, not now. It's critical I find Melvin or Jeannie. Why? Who are they? Peter leaned against the counter and inhaled deeply. Curtis, there are certain things about me. He popped the can. Hey, you're acting real strange. I can't put my finger on it. No offense, but it's like you have feelings, like you care. I haven't cared much? Well, I mean, you've always had your life. The things that you do, uh, maybe I just think you're changing. You've actually been polite. Roberta Joe flipped just because you haven't been yourself. Curtis, if I haven't been a good father as you wanted, I'm sorry. See? See? Curtis placed the cool can on his forehead. Pete Sturgis never apologizes to nobody. Then that's your motto. And, he said, slopping the beer into his mouth, here you are telling me you're sorry. Man, this is really weird. I guess there is a God. Dad, I take it back. Last time you brought me fishing with your friends from the Union, that's what it's like today. Like you took me under your wing. Peter studied this young man, his son with Roberta Joe. Maybe we can do it again sometime. Wow, that would be unreal, he said, tilting his head. You sure you're feeling all right? I mean, it's like you're acting different. Like you're not Pete Sturgis. I read this article in one of my magazines about these people who were brought on board a UFO. See, the beings change their personality. Well, hey man, whenever I'm out at night, I keep watching the skies. But you ain't acting like my dad. Peter Sturgis, a selfish, lazy man not in touch with his family, had severely neglected Curtis. Over supper at the center table, they spoke about Curtis's life. Peter had spent extended periods away from Roberta Joe during Curtis's younger years. 
Somehow Curtis had overcome the neglect and the abuse. He worked in a machine shop outside of town for the past year. His nickname was the Free Spirit and matched his image of constantly riding his motorcycle. Peter sensed a growing responsibility for Curtis. Peter slept on the front sofa so Roberta Joe would leave him alone after the late shift. He opened his eyes when she slammed the trailer door. Wearing jeans and a torn sweatshirt and smoking a half-spent cigarette, she eyed him with a tacit contempt, saying nothing as she went to the liquor cabinet and filled a tall glass with amber scotch whiskey. How was your night, Berta? You work your ass off, did you? She poured the liquor down her throat. Then her high-pitched voice shook the little trailer. Peter closed his eyes and folded his arms. Rather than listen to her complaints, he just wanted to get back home. He wanted to hear Petey and Marissa's voices, watch Jonathan's baseball games, or even pick an argument with Wendy. He wanted to be safely inside his home at the end of the Spring Street cul-de-sac. And he wanted Jeannie. Chapter 8 Scorned as he wandered around westerly, and depressed by the dismal trailer life with Roberta Joe, Peter became more despondent as the days went by. Every night, mixed with boozy cigarette smoke, Roberta Joe revived arguments from years past. Astonished by her hatred, Peter said nothing, maintained his distance, and usually left in the midst of the battle. He became closer, almost like a buddy to Curtis, spending evenings with him at the lodge hall and even promising him a mountain fishing trip before fall. He saw in Curtis's face the young boy who had yearned for his father's company. Despite his lackadaisical attitude, Curtis had a deep sensitivity overshadowed by a stymied potential. Given the right set of circumstances, he might make something of his life. One rainy night, trying to bolster a closer relationship, he went bowling with Curtis. The smell of hot dogs and fries drifted across the noisy alley. His son spun the marble green ball down the waxed wood alley. The pins knocked together, mixed with the music and the crowd buzz of the busy alley. He thumbed through a sports magazine. Dwight Gooden had just signed as a free agent with the Yankees. He placed the magazine down as Curtis finished his frame by toppling the last four pins. Peter patted his son's back as the blue sweeper, with a yellow stenciled advertisement for Eddie's all-night gas station, pushed aside the fallen pins before the reset lowered. Peter let the smooth ball roll around his hand, but Ricardo's sick revenge bothered and skewed his concentration. If only he and Melvin had not listened to Beringer and had just let the government handle Ricardo's schemes. He released the ball, but it veered into the gutter just short of the pins. Curtis smiled and Peter shrugged his shoulders. He performed better on the next frame and took some kidding from Curtis when he sat down with the other bowlers. Being in this reality resembled a checker game, having the checkers jumped, removed off the board, and placed somewhere else. He slid People magazine off the table and flipped the pages to the entertainment scene. With each explosive crack of the pins, he alternated glances back to Curtis. He turned the folded page near the rear of the magazine and glared at the glossy black-and-white photograph of Jeannie, her hair shot and frosted. The photo, taken in California, showed her leaving her Malibu estate months ago. Peter gently mouthed her name and ran his fingers down the smooth page. Impossible! Impossible! He yelled amidst the noise as he leaped to his feet. Tears filled his eyes. In his most optimistic thoughts, he had never dreamed he would see Jeannie in People magazine. An accompanying article detailed her work on an upcoming picture called The Reluctant Bride, directed and produced by her husband and longtime famous movie maker known only as Ricardo. Peter's upper lip curled, sweat beaded across his forehead, and his heart thumped like an engine pushed to the limit. Married to Ricardo, Jeannie had starred in motion pictures for ten years. Gripping the magazine with both hands, he nearly knocked over the table as he staggered backward. Up front, Curtis cocked his arm and released the ball down the alley. The pins were leveled seconds later and Curtis raised his hands into the air. Peter sidestepped the scoring tables, dodged a few patrons, and then bolted to the exit doors. Once in the outside drizzling night air, he fell back against the white-painted brick building and lifted the magazine up in the dim streetlight as water dripped off the rooftop. 
Ricardo and Jeannie sunned along a tiled pool capped with tall, narrow palm trees and an ivy wall. He had a silly little skimpy suit, and she wore a striped string bikini that accentuated her buttocks. Anyone who picked up in the magazine could oogle at the body only he had known. Her smile, although wide and prevalent through a series of photos, appeared remarkably fixed. The public knew her by her maiden name, Jean Carlyle. Jeannie, as a Hollywood starlet, touted as sexy, and the referrals to nude scenes were not as upsetting to Peter as her marriage to Ricardo. The story detailed their travels around the globe and their houses on distant continents. He shook his head when he read about this perfect marriage and workplace commitment. As a few vehicles spread the road puddles and an occasional car stopped at the traffic light, Peter shouted into the haze, I'll get you! I'll stop you! No more Cibola! His voice became scratchy and strained. You will die, Ricardo! I'll get her back! He slid his fingertips along the wet bricks and thrust his foot into the alley door. His hands tightened around the compressed magazine. The loud bowling alley sounds rattled him. He would leave Westerly and travel to California, convincing himself that he could get Jeannie back in his arms and murder Ricardo. As he smacked the magazine against the pinball machine, Curtis raised his hand at the scoring tables. Peter threw the magazine in the plastic barrel and then wandered back to the lane. Curtis smiled and gave him a nod. Dad, I wondered where you went. They do have restrooms in here. Oh, I'm sorry, Curtis. I needed some air. Am I up? You're on board, Dad. It's all up to you. Peter stepped onto the glossy alley and grasped the ball in his hands. Ricardo had kept Jeannie alive even for his own ends. Peter had no funds, but he vowed to get her anyway. He fired the ball down the polished wood alley. It spun left and then came center, impacting the lead pin and scattering the rest. Then he turned to Curtis and winked. I got them all, Curtis. I got them all. Chapter 9 Peter entered the red brick westerly library through the front aluminum doors. For several hours, as the people came and went, he sat at a long laminated table under the fluorescent lights. He sifted through the outdated magazines and newspapers for information about Jeannie. Already known as a stage actress, she had gone to California in her 20s specifically to make motion pictures. Her vibrant facial expressions and alluring dark eyes had landed her initial roles. She became well-known nationally when she starred in a low-budget thriller about a woman pursued by a motorcycle gang in Arizona. After the motorcycle pictures, she began a bona fide career in an upgraded science fiction series called The Harmony Chronicles, where she played a heroine in a strange future world. All the magazines now rated her as one of the top stars in the country, commanding a salary of several million dollars a picture. Ricardo had created his new reality. Late in the afternoon, Peter went downtown and returned with a large coffee. This time he nestled into one of the large maroon leather chairs in the corner by the window overlooking Main Street. A full article about Jeannie in a national newspaper showed a number of problems, including an old drug addiction. Peter incredulously read the article details about her overdosing and her consistent substance abuse. Jeannie had never taken any drugs and drank socially in suburban westerly. Stifled by her fame and frustrated by his own empty pockets, his resolve never wavered. For a moment, he looked toward the periodical rack and thought about finding more information about her. Accumulating more facts would not change things. Peter stepped outside just before closing time. As supper smells drifted out of the huge blue Victorian home adjacent to the library, he traipsed across the grass toward the schoolyard. At the chain-link fence, he gazed at the brick wall where he had received his Citizen of the Year award. Spring winds swept down from the mountains and stirred up the remaining winter leaves across the vacant asphalt lot. No platform had been constructed in this lot for Pete Sturgis, Citizen of the Year. To his right, across the newly cut grass field, the high school baseball team shagged fly balls and the other boys took hitting practice at the curved chain-link backstop. He looked for Jonathan, but Jonathan did not exist in this reality. None of his own kids had ever been born. 
He thought about calling out to Tommy Carpus, but he did not want to face being ignored or ridiculed again. His stomach tightened as he retreated from the school grounds. Against the darkened cloud bank, the sunlight coated the Ganeake Range's stone ledges and lofty trees. Peter faced his dented beige aluminum trailer in Pimento Park. He trudged up the stairs, unlocked the door, and went inside. Dishes were stacked in the stainless steel sink. He boiled a cup of instant coffee on the stove. As he sat on the flowery sofa, he spotted the answering machine's red flashing light. Coffee cup in hand, he stepped to the counter and pushed the button. Berta, this is Carrie. Call me when you get in. Peter rolled his eyes and leaned against the refrigerator. He closed his eyes and could almost hear Roberta Joe chastising him. The machine beeped a second time. Peter, this is Melvin. Peter opened his eyes and stared at the red light. I didn't get any listing on Spring Street. I don't know why you're at the trailer park. Get a pen. Peter bounded back to the counter and grabbed a pencil off the stack of papers. Melvin's voice reverberated throughout the tiny trailer. He said something about being in Wyoming. Peter caught the last of his phone number but had to replay the machine to get the full number. His hand shaking, he quickly dialed the cordless. The line clicked and rang. A rush of adrenaline made him breathe rapidly. A younger woman's voice sounded on the other end. Peter smiled and identified himself, letting her know that Melvin had called his machine. She mentioned Melvin had left for work hours ago and she gave Peter the work number. Peter thanked her and made a second call to Wyoming, and the line rang, but this time, Melvin's gritty voice rumbled into the earpiece. Ornstein Cleaners, this is Mel. Is that really you, Melvin? Peter, dear God, Peter. He changed everything. You know, what he has become? And Jeannie, he sent her to Hollywood. She's one of the biggest stars in the country. I'm so sorry, Peter. Peter choked on his words. I know her whole background from college, acting right through her meeting Ricardo. Melvin, I have a wife and a 17-year-old son here. I live in a trailer and I don't have a job. Everybody in Westerly hates my guts. Oh, God, Peter. I'm okay, Melvin. I'm okay. Ricardo gave me a string of cleaners, five stores. Peter, I'm married to this 30-year-old woman named Jill. I don't smoke. I work out at... Melvin... Cibola is the key. Cibola was the legendary city of gold. The seven cities sought by early explorers, especially Coronado. I think Ricardo and Martin found this place, but it wasn't a city of gold. It was a place where reality is transformed. I went on the internet yesterday. The place must be securely hidden in the Rockies. I want to find Jeannie. Cibola can wait. I need to find her. Then we can go looking after Cibola. No. I, I didn't tell Jill either. Oh, who would believe it? Who would believe that? Just because we were helping with an investigation, this monster would throw us into the pit? What now? Peter, you have money to fly to Cheyenne? Zippo, broke. No money, no job, nothing. Okay, listen, I'll book you out of Albany. Do you have money? Well, isn't that hunky-dory? Peter again clenched his fist. If I get my hands on that son of a bitch, I'll kill him. I will kill him. Peter, forget about him. You must find Jeannie. Look, I'll meet you at the Cheyenne Regional Airport. I can call you back with all the info. You'll be out of there ASAP. Well, my only regret is Curtis. Curtis? My son, in this reality, I'm good friends with Curtis now. Peter stared at the sun-drenched mountains for a few moments. Gee, it's so good to hear your voice, Melvin. The door opened and Curtis bounded into the trailer. Hey, Dad. Peter's throat tightened. Melvin, I can't even believe you're alive. Call me back when you book the flight. We'll stop this thing right now. All right, I'll talk to you, Peter. Hey, Curtis. Peter had a huge smile. His son pulled open the refrigerator and retrieved a beer. I hear something about a flight? Melvin lives in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Listen, Melvin is an old friend of mine. I'm going to visit him. Oh, yeah, Melvin. I may be gone for a while. 
Curtis said nothing as he flipped on the portable TV. Peter checked the newspaper listings and found Jeannie's movie playing downtown. After 15 minutes of coaxing and agreeing to pay for the tickets, he persuaded Curtis to join him. Peter knew the emotions would flow once he saw a larger-than-life image of Jeannie on the screen. Curtis parked the motorcycle under one of the light poles, but as they entered the familiar six-theater complex, Peter thought about the many times he had taken Jeannie and the kids to this very place. He looked at the concession counter and remembered how he had bought candy, popcorn, and drinks for the kids. Curtis handed him a soft drink and some popcorn, and then he purchased tickets at the booth. He saw Jeannie's name on the marquee and stared for several seconds. Curtis, munching the popcorn, turned. You a Gene Carlisle fan, Dad? Peter slowly turned from the marquee and nodded. Yes, I am. Whoa, he said, raising his dark brows. Peter escorted him to one of the darkened theaters to the right. A promo for another movie filled the screen and music shook the little theater. He followed the tiny tube lights along the aisle seats up front. A few seconds later, he took a deep breath and leaned back in the cushioned chair. Again, as the preview continued, he thought of his kids enjoying movies at this very theater. He half-watched the previews, but focused once the white letters crossed the blue screen. Feature Presentation His eyes widened when he saw the red letters on the dark screen. A Ricardo film. His brow wrinkled and he gripped the seat arms. Tears filled his eyes when Jeannie's name faded into the darkness. His words moved up from the heart, and he whispered softly, Jeannie. After the other names had faded over in the film opening, showing the rain beating against a dusty road leading into a small country village, peasants ran for cover, and a man led a horse into a barn. Peddlers and merchants in the square dragged carts and boxes inside thatch-roof buildings. According to the article in Time magazine, the story took place in a small European town centuries ago. The plot involved a prearranged marriage between an aging nobleman and a younger, attractive peasant girl. The girl, both ambitious and keenly intelligent, becomes a woman and rises to a position of wealth and power. She marries three times over the course of her long life and comes into control of vast land and commercial interests. In the end, she loses everything for the man she truly loves. As he sat next to Curtis in the theater darkness, Peter once again sensed the gnawing in his stomach and the deep longing within his soul when he first saw Jeannie, clad in the flowering yellow dress. In the vibrant light, her hair, longer than in the magazine photos, bounced across her bare shoulders as she descended from the ivy-walled English manor house onto a grassy slope. Silent tears trickled down his cheek at the sight of her beautiful brown eyes. He had caressed that face and run his fingers through that soft hair. As the movie progressed, Jeannie maneuvered herself into the first marriage of convenience. The cinematography revealed vivid covers and unique camera angles. In the wedding scene, the backlight of the medieval cathedral enhanced her soft skin. As the scene suddenly switched to the bedroom, he briefly glanced at her naked body spread before the nobleman, and then he sidestepped into the aisle. Her luring words to the nobleman resounded throughout the theater as Peter passed the usher and thrust open the lobby doors. Clenching his fist, he staggered to the outside window. The myriad of lights in the plaza brightened above the passing highway traffic. He closed his eyes. Tomorrow morning, he would leave Westerly for Cheyenne, and Melvin had the means to get him directly out to Los Angeles. What if Ricardo had constructed this reality so Jeannie never remembered her past? He wandered around the lobby, his stomach wrenching, gritting his teeth as he pushed open the theater doors. Curtis looked up as Peter backtracked against the row and sat down again. He settled in the soft chair and marveled at Jeannie's choreography in the dramatic waltz scene, filmed in one of the great drawing rooms. Because Jeannie existed in this reality, he had to survive. Curtis nudged Peter a few minutes later and continued to view the movie, but then he whispered, I'm coming with you. What? asked Peter, grinning. You want to come with me? It would be a kick. Wyoming? I've never been past New York City. Damn, Wyoming. Dad, I got more money saved than you might think. What about your job at the shop? Are you kidding? Guys come and go there all the time. 
I'll go with you, and when we come back, I'll just show up again and go to work. Your mother will, nah, she ain't going to be upset. We could stand some time apart. What do you say? Peter focused on Jeannie as she rode through the meadow on horseback, and a rainbow arched across the verdant hills. Curtis, I would be honored to have you accompany me to Cheyenne. Chapter 10 Across from the school baseball field, Peter and Curtis boarded a red-and-white airport shuttle bus. Curtis raised his eyebrow with a persnickety grin. Peter returned the smile, closed his eyes, and leaned back in the seat. Jeannie's yellow gown, brilliant in the twilight, filled his thoughts as the bus pulled onto the interstate. Ricardo, aware of Peter's pain, had allowed him to live. He understood that Peter would become cognizant of Jeannie's stardom and her marriage but he also knew Peter and Melvin would find each other. He must have gleefully awaited Peter's next move. At the airport, Peter shared Curtis's enthusiasm as the plane backed away from the terminal. A few hours from now, Melvin would await them in Cheyenne. Working together, they might extricate Jeannie from Mercado. Yet finding Cibola and figuring out how to return to the correct reality remained a remote possibility. Curtis asked the well-dressed businessman in the black suit if he would mind trading places on the plane. The man next to the window and reading his newspaper had no objection. Curtis spent the next three hours gawking out the jet window as if he were watching his favorite television program. Peter worried what would happen to Curtis once they found Cibola. Would Curtis return to the other reality with them? A few days ago, Peter and Melvin were long-term employees at RICOM, a corporation that now never existed. Melvin, noticeably slimmer and dressed in a blue blazer and beige slacks, stood next to a tall woman with short brown hair and long legs. Her natural smile blended into her sparkling blue eyes. Peter and Curtis chugged up the ramp. Melvin secured a bear hug around Peter and then introduced Jill. Peter shook hands with her. She had a reassuring look about her and a gentle voice. Melvin then gripped Curtis's hand. Your dad and I go back a long way. Best friends in another time and place, said Curtis. I would say that's pretty damned accurate. They strutted in front of Curtis and Jill. Peter at first spoke from the side of his mouth. Melvin, can you figure this all out? Cibola, outside Denver in the Rockies. Something or someone allows him and that guy Martin to do what they've done. He has my wife, damn it. He took away my family, my standing in Westerly. Wiped out my life. Peter put his hand on Melvin's shoulder. You made out all right. I did. I'm convinced that he wants you to stay here instead of helping me find Jeannie. When Melvin did not respond, Peter looked him in the eye. You are going to help me, aren't you? I'll do what I can, Peter. Melvin, I've got a good life here, my... A woman who loves me, successful business. Peter gritted his teeth. That's exactly what he wanted to happen. Don't you see that? I'll, I'll do what I can do. Peter exhaled and shook his head as they moved outside the terminal. He stopped again at the curb and faced his friend as the loud shuttle buses passed. Melvin, you can go back to your life here once I locate Jeannie. I understand you don't want to find Cibola. Just get me to L.A. Come with me. Melvin tightened his wrinkled face and adjusted his glasses as he wiped his mouth. Look, uh, I'll consider it. That's all I can say. I'll consider it. A black fence with a front gate surrounded the three-story angular stone and stucco house set back from Highway 15. Fluffy green trees followed the winding asphalt driveway through the rolling grass. Melvin pushed a button inside his BMW. The gate swung open and they moved into a spacious garage under the house. Melvin told Peter of a past prior to his arrival. He supposedly had built the house after he had married Jill, one of his employees, five years ago. Once they were settled inside, servants prepared and served a multi-course dinner. Melvin and Curtis talked about football while Jill told Peter about this area of Wyoming where she had lived all her life. Peter realized as he listened how luck had come Melvin's way, but he knew, concurrently, how much he missed Jeannie. The thought of her with Ricardo, plagued by a drug problem, slowly tortured his mind. After dinner and a tour of the house, Melvin brought Peter back to his elegant wood-paneled study upstairs. 
Surrounded by shelves of books, Peter sat back in one of the leather chairs. Melvin closed the study doors. I can see why Ricardo was so powerful. You mean, why he is so powerful, Melvin? If he can really leap between realities, think of the possibilities. I have. I've done a detailed study on this whole mess. What do you mean? Ever hear of the many worlds theory? Peter leaned forward in the chair. Sounds like an amusement park ride. Melvin laughed, but he no longer had that choking cough he had back in Westerly. Oh, I wish it was. Our boy Ricardo and his buddy Martin have been in contact with someone or something that has learned what a doctoral student at Princeton in the 1950s had proposed. His name was Hugh Everett III. The Many Worlds theory says that for each possibility of action, the world splits and duplicates itself. Melvin, said Peter as he stood, while I'm impressed with your worldly knowledge, I just want to find Jeannie. Wait, wait, hear me out. Everett called this splitting of possibilities decohesion. According to the theory, the person is not cognizant of the split. I don't understand. Life is life. It goes forward. No, no, Peter. That isn't what happens at all. We are just spectators to this. It's all about probability. It's pure quantum mechanics. I even brought in a local professor to tutor me about all this. So let me get this straight. I'll accept what you're saying. And Ricardo is somehow able to jump across these other possibilities. Right on the money. Melvin paced as if he were a professor himself. The Heisenberg uncertainty principle is negated. Oh, you lost me. We don't have any effect on anything because we just observe it. Niels Bohr's Copenhagen interpretation is wrong. This Cibola place demonstrates that. Peter sat back in the leather chair and let his arms droop. Quantum particle, according to Bohr, is in all possible states at once. Once we look at it, the quantum particle loses a probability. That's what we see, and that's why a quantum particle behaves like a drugged-out bee. Peter sat up. So, this many worlds thing that Ricardo controls has many possibilities but not because of how we observe it? Yes, you know about Schrodinger's cat. Is he a neighbor of yours? Never mind. Want to hear about your neighbor's cat, said Peter, spinning slightly in the chair. Melvin smiled broadly and sat on the edge of the desk. It's about a cat in a box. Viennese physicist Edward Schrodinger came up with it in 1935. A thought experiment. He puts the cat in a box with some radioactive material and a Geiger counter to sense the decay of the radioactive material. Material decays, and a hammer smashes a flask of hydrocyanic acid, which kills the cat. Melvin, anyone ever tell you this is a sick experiment? Wait, wait. In actuality, we don't know what the hell happened to the cat. It was both dead and alive because we hadn't seen it. Peter rolled his eyes. My point is the world we see around us isn't really what exists. That uncertainty is really the splitting of possibilities. That's all. I'm sure Ricardo has lived many lives in many worlds. Well, this is true, but I'm trying to put this whole thing in context as you spoke. Ricardo allowed himself to be caught with kickbacks and bribes. That doesn't make any sense. Jeopardizing it all before he could leap like a frog into another world? Why would he do that? I think he believes he's invulnerable. He likes the confrontation and the chase. Martin more reasonable. I like Martin. Peter thought for a second. Martin may be the only reason he hasn't destroyed himself. This is true. In the hotel, Martin was upset with Ricardo's antics. Maybe we can use him to get the Cibola once you get Jeannie away from Ricardo. Cibola? What does that mean? asked Peter as he stood and walked to the window. He overlooked Melvin's drive lighted by lamp poles up to the main gate. He definitely mentioned going to Cibola. Ah, said Melvin, lifting a leather-bound book off his desk. He opened it to an old maps page of the southwestern United States. 1539. Cibola came from the Spaniards. They heard tall tales of the seven cities of gold, located across the desert hundreds of miles to the north, all because of four shipwrecked survivors of the Navarrez expedition. When they came back, they started blabbing about the cities filled with wealth. Viceroy Antonio de Mendoza gathered a party and a friar and a slave named Estevanico, and he led a group of them to find the wealth. 
Some time later, Este Vandico and the others went up ahead, and they ran into a monk who talked up the native stories about the seven cities called Cibola. Este Vandico went ahead to what is now called New Mexico. A pissed-off Zuni tribe killed Este Vandico, and his companions fled. Two of those men were Ricardo and Martin. Melvin, how do you know this? asked Peter from the window. Because in Spain, they have all of de Mendoza's logs of the expedition. Jill and I went to Spain last Christmas. I found the records in the Madrid library and had them translated. Ricardo Diego Mendina and Martin Carlos Vasquez. Oh, God, he said, stepping toward Melvin in the leather book. Mendoza then sent Coronado in April of 1540. Coronado found nothing. It was assumed that all the stories were lies. Had he continued, he would have found what Ricardo and Martin found. Coronado swept over the whole region with this many worlds thing right under his nose. That can't be a natural phenomenon, Melvin. Probably some advanced race, and who knows why the hell they stuck that machine or whatever it is in the Colorado mountains. I don't understand it. How could they do it? But the fact that Ricardo has tiptoed between realities tells me what happened. The fact that he put us in this reality, and Jeannie, if it is my Jeannie, you mean she might be the genie of this reality, not transferred over like you and me. He allowed you and I to remember our other world. Peter stared at the leather book and looked up. Martin isn't just going to have a chauffeured off to Cibola. He's still loyal to Ricardo. He could just kill us. Melvin nodded. You may be forced to stay in this reality forever. As a neglectful father, wife beater, unable to support his family... Ricardo, nor any man, should have this power. No man can handle that power without feeling omnipotent, without letting his own human feelings get in the way. Total power. And I had to sit there and watch as he prated my wife nude in front of the country. I read articles about Jeannie's drug abuse and pressure. Then Peter raised his voice. What the hell has he done to her, Melvin? I'm sorry, said Melvin from his desk. I just rubbed Ricardo the wrong way, and he had an instant thing for Jeannie. And given the fact that he has this power, he could take her away from me as easily as you and I take a trip to the supermarket. I'm going to kill him, Melvin. I'm going to kill the bastard with my bare hands, or just stop him from going to Cibola. This is all so unbelievable. I wake up, and I'm in bed with some strange woman who hates my guts, and I'm wondering what the hell happened. You were placed nine months ahead. It was instant for me. Must have been a reason for that. I'm amazed how everything is basically the same, said Melvin. I need you to come with me. I'm not asking you to give up what you have here, Melvin. Just come out there with Curtis and me. Help us find Jeannie. Melvin stroked his chin and then nodded. Okay. Hallelujah. That could be your Jeannie out there. Well, the psychiatric hospitals are full of crazies, Melvin. We'd be put right there with all of them. If we say that worlds are split into these many worlds, existing in close proximity, infinite worlds in our own world, the world we knew. Melvin pushed his way up from the desk and sauntered over to Peter. He put his arm around his old friend. We'll come back here if we can't change things. But above all, we keep it all to ourselves and do what we have to do. Chapter 11 Peter's emotions swirled like the haze whizzing past the outside jet window. He had logically thought out his plan and fantasized about Jeannie's face when she saw him approach somewhere in California or at one of her other homes. He would take Jeannie from Mercado's clutches, and they could find this Cibola place together. The plane banked over the color-drained high desert toward bold rock-faced peaks that bordered the sloping urban spread down toward the Pacific. A heavy, mustard-hued smog layer, buffered by the mountain range, settled over the valley. The flattening sprawl widened to the eastern rim desert and disappeared over the horizon. Somewhere, as the wide-body jet circled the basin amidst this megalopolis, Jeannie lived with Ricardo. Peter viewed the unfolding scenario as a battle, and the arrogant Ricardo expected and even welcomed the fight. Outside the airport, Melvin rented a huge black Hummer. As Peter accelerated the vehicle into the freeway traffic, Curtis stared at the continuous suburban growth. 
Melvin fumbled with the road map and directed them north of Hollywood. The Hummer can go through anything, said Curtis. I'd stay out of the Pacific, answered Peter with a grin. They found a North Hollywood real estate office, and Melvin unfolded a wad of bills on the counter for a bungalow in the city. The tiny 1930s house, crammed between other red-tiled roof stucco cottages blanketing the hills, had a long cement walk and wood-beam eaves. Peter and Curtis ventured down the sidewalk shortly after their arrival. Curtis pointed to the white-lettered Hollywood sign across from the dry scrub-brush hills. The block letters mesmerized Peter. He thought about his own wife, an internationally known star, how she appeared unreachable and had nothing in common with Pete Sturgis. Curtis spoke in an excited, high-pitched, non-stop dialogue about the city. He persuaded Peter to continue down the sidewalk. The embedded stars in the cement lured him forward to find Jeannie's star. Curtis ran forward. A hundred yards away, he waved at Peter as if he were doing jumping jacks. Peter broke into a jog and then sprinted by the tourist on the sidewalk. Curtis stood with one foot on either side of the gold star. Peter slowed to a walk. Between his sneakers, a gold filling outlined the pink, gritty inner coral surface. An inlaid silhouette of a movie camera set within a gold sphere designated the profession of the name in gold letters. Gene Carlyle. He fell to his knees, like a blind man about to touch something he would never see. Peter placed his fingertips on the smooth gold outline. For several seconds, he traced the outer edges. Then he felt the gritty interior as he dragged his fingertips toward the larger letters. He feared her rejection, and he stopped. The bold letters gleamed in the afternoon sunlight, and an occasional cloud shadow darkened and cooled his back. The letters were chiseled deep in the star and even deeper in his heart. He looked up at his son, backlit against the clouds in the blue sky. Let's find her, Curtis. Peter scanned the papers, magazines, and studio press releases for anything concerning Jeannie. Melvin, too, made numerous calls and actually connected to a studio to garner information. Jeannie had left Los Angeles, having flown to Ricardo's Mexican retreat near Puerto Vallada two weeks ago and her schedule would bring her back in town at the end of the week. Melvin hung up the phone and gazed up from the round oak table in the tiny bungalow's dining area. Peter, you find something, Melvin? I just talked to one of the people who shot commercials with Jeannie before she went to Mexico. Peter chuckled. Jeannie doing commercials? There's a public appearance this weekend south of the city. They have Jeannie scheduled to unveil her new perfume line in one of the malls down there. Melvin looked at his scribbled notes. The San Marquito Pavilion. Just another name for a friggin' mall. Peter smiled and stepped closer. And located in San Juan Capistrano. She'll be in the middle of this pavilion at noon on Saturday. Damn, I don't know if I can take this. Peter backed to the window and stared down the tree-lined street. I mean, seeing her up close. What if she's not Jeannie? She won't recognize me. I'll just be another face in the crowd. Peter, unfortunately, you have to find out the truth. As harsh as it might sound, we will know what we can and can't do with the genie of this reality. She may be a completely different person with her own background and beliefs, history, and hopes. It will hurt, Peter. I won't say it won't, but then we'll know we have to switch our plans. What if it is genie? Then we find a way out for her and she'll willingly come with us. Peter shook his head. I don't know if I can accept her not being the genie I knew. We don't even know if we'll be able to find Cibola. It's hidden away, or everyone would know about it. Ricardo and Martin are the only ones who ever found it. Maybe, maybe not. Others could have found it. He let the curtain fall back in place. He won't get away with this. Getting back at Ricardo, Peter, would be a serious mistake. A damn serious mistake. I say bail out at Cibola if we can. Hopefully, Jeannie will be with us. What assurances do we have, Melvin? None. Curtis crossed his arms from the doorway. Hey, man, I heard this talk back in Cheyenne. Are you trying to find out where Jean Carlyle is? Peter nodded. I know her. In your dreams? This is sick. Curtis laughed. And the way you fell all over that star in Hollywood? Peter stepped toward his son. I'm hoping she remembers me. 
Roberta Joe know about this? Asked Curtis, raising his brows as he grinned. Best thing for you, Dad, is for me to call the cops. Now hold it, Curtis, interjected Melvin. Nobody's calling the police. Right, and you two kidnapped. Wait a minute, Curtis, said Peter. There's more going on here than you realize. Well, it's sick is what it is. Melvin looked at Peter. You better level with him, Peter. Come on. Peter motioned Curtis outside. They stepped onto the concrete walk in front of the bungalow. I'm not who you think I am. Don't try and confuse me. Let's go for a ride. Curtis climbed in once Peter started the engine. Peter looped the huge vehicle around the street and started up the winding road into the surrounding hills. Well, you can't blame me for being freaked out, Dad. Not exactly westerly, is it? Curtis shook his head but kept the petrified look on his face. Curtis, have I acted like your father or somebody else? You mean the old Pete Sturgis? I told you, you're not the old Pete Sturgis by a long shot. Ricardo brought me into this reality through a place called Cibola. Oh, whatever you say, Dad. Curtis smiled and looked out the window as they gained elevation over the city. I heard you and Melvin mention him and how you want to murder him. Look, Dad, the other morning when you were frying bacon and eggs, I woke in that bed, I tell you. My last memories were of being injected by Ricardo's security guards on an airplane at the Westerly Airport nine months ago. Yeah, whatever you say. As they moved higher, Peter pointed at the spreading basin, packed with houses, swimming pools, and streets that stretched to the horizon. To his right, the Los Angeles skyscrapers were silhouetted in the sunlit haze. Makes sleepy old Westerly look like some kind of pin dot. Yep. I began treating you like a human being. You don't see me drunk and hitting people, do you? How many people live out here, anyways? Millions, Peter downshifted. Curtis, are you listening to me? All I know is I don't want the old Pete Sturgis back, no matter where he comes from. The old Pete Sturgis is gone. I wondered how you got all them new vocabulary words. You didn't talk like Pete Sturgis, and you didn't treat me like Pete Sturgis. I'm not Pete Sturgis. Okay, okay, you're not Pete Sturgis. Curtis looked up the road to a white building set on the hillside. What's this place? I'm not sure. An astronomical observatory, telescope dome nestled on the hilltop, glowed in the afternoon sun. Peter shifted the Hummer to the top and veered into a visitor's parking lot to the right. They exited the SUV and headed to the smooth white observatory and its two smaller wings. A ramp walkway surrounding the dome led to an open view of the valley. Curtis joined Peter at the retaining wall. He pressed his lips and put his hand on Peter's shoulder. I get it, okay? Peter hugged his son and smiled as he looked into Curtis's eyes. Thank you. Hey, then you know I'm not going to kidnap anybody. Guess I shouldn't have called the FBI. What? He shouted and held Curtis's shoulders, but Curtis threw back his head in laughter. You what? No, no, no. His eyes were wet from laughing. Curtis, what the hell? Had you going, didn't I? You almost gave me a heart attack. Then he grinned. Then you're with me on this. Hell yeah, I'm with you. Thank you. FBI. FBI. Peter searched for Jeannie's mansion in Bel Air, but something occupied every conceivable space dissected only by the roads and boulevards extending to the horizon beyond Long Beach. The ubiquitous movement of cars and trucks in unison pulsed along the looping concrete freeways. Hidden in smog, San Juan Capistrano to the south, the site of Jeannie's first public appearance upon her return, would provide him the opportunity he needed to see her. If he did meet her, what would she know about the life they once knew? Chapter 12 during the night, Peter stared at the moon-glazed trees. As the light passed between the picket fence posts near the other bungalows, Melvin's many-worlds theory consumed his thoughts. He shook his head, not so much concerned about the validity of the theory, but more than anything, he wanted to get Jeannie back. Sunlight crept over the hills, producing new wiry shadows over the landscape. At 5.30, he woke his son. Melvin wandered out of the other bedroom in his striped boxes and v-necked undershirt. His gray hair swept outward on the side. Peter stepped to the middle of the room and pretended to speak into a microphone. And this corner is Melvin Szymanski, 
the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world. I ought to lay you out for waking me up so early. What time is it, Peter? 5.15. Thank you, son of Peter. Guess that would make me Curtis Peterson, he smiled. Melvin sat at the dining room table and ran his hand over his face. I suppose you want me to leave for that pavilion now. Don't worry, Melvin. I'll buy you breakfast, said Peter. Melvin blinked his eyes and grinned. Then he put on his glasses. Yeah, with my wallet. I'll buy you breakfast, said Curtis. Oh, hush feathers. I'm starved anyways. Let me shower and we'll head out. Curtis raised his hand up and cheered, but Melvin's face tightened as he walked across the room. He put his arm around Peter. Peter, you need to prepare yourself. This woman may know nothing about you. Knowing Ricardo the way I do, I'd almost bank on it. Melvin, I've got my work cut out for me. After breakfast, where Curtis' appetite impressed even Melvin, they traveled on the freeway through the city and drove south as the urban crunch diminished. Near some open fields with cattle grazing, they exited the freeway and maneuvered down the side roads into Capistrano. In the distance, the San Mercado Pavilion built on a hill, a huge multi-story structure with a central building, resembling an inflated shaker barn, dwarfed the rural countryside. The mall marquee had an entrance with tall black letters. Saturday, Jean Carlyle, star of The Reluctant Bride. Peter stared at the marquee as the goosebumps covered his arms. Melvin elbowed his side. He lifted the directional and turned into the mall entrance. Although only separated from Jeannie for less than a week, time had stretched his thoughts. She would arrive soon without Ricardo, he hoped, and his stomach tingled at the prospect of seeing his wife again. He had ambivalent feelings, and though scared, he wanted to have his wife back. What would she say when she saw him? Could he accept being just another adoring fan lost in the sea of faces? Melvin nudged his side again. We're early, Peter. I don't think you're going to miss her appearance. We need to find a position up front. Peter parked the car near the multi-sided wooden building with the upper windows. Ain't many cars here, said Curtis. Well, wait until the fans get here, said Peter. Melvin had a sly grin. You sound like you want there to be a large turnout. Peter cut the engine and smiled. Well, I want her to do well. Again, be prepared for the worst, Peter, he said as Peter opened the mall door and the cool air blew outside. A wide, red-carpeted stage with a white trellis background and dozens of tall, leafy green plants had been constructed near the indoor waterfall cascading over faded bricks. From above, the skylights and upper windows cast a cool sheen over the pavilion tiles. Workers aligned the wooden chairs in a semicircle behind the center microphone. Two massive studio posters showed a younger genie with long hair, heavy green eyeshadow, and brows trimmed closely. Closing his eyes, Peter wiped away a tear before Melvin and Curtis could see. With a 45-minute wait before Jeannie's arrival, Curtis suggested they buy brunch at the bagel concession at the end of the food court. Peter found a table near the stage and just sipped his orange-spiced tea. Melvin read the newspaper and dunked the bagels into his coffee, while Curtis walked the pavilion with an orange juice cart and plunked in his hand. Melvin looked up from the paper. What a break. What's that, Melvin? asked Peter, letting the tea vapors smooth his tired face. Ricardo. Peter set down the cup and creased his brow. What about him? He left for Marseille yesterday, a small article in the entertainment section. Film festival. He's coming back to the U.S. for another movie he's doing. He returns at the end of next week. Well, that's a break. For him, I might have killed him. Come on, Peter, forget about Ricardo. Well, how can I, Melvin? Melvin set down the paper on the glass table and twisted his lips. Listen, I think if this falls through, we should just go back to my place. Then we can plan the Cibola thing. You need to know where Cibola is. They know where it is. Martin and Ricardo. They're the ticket. You know that, Melvin. I know. The stage tables were loaded with the cosmetic lines bottles and atomizers. A musk fragrance slowly inundated the air, and the chattering fans packed into the pavilion. The center glass tower clock above the waterfalls chimed, sending flutters across Peter's stomach. An aging man in a white tuxedo and slick-back hair warmed the audience up with a series of unfunny, deadpan jokes. When the booing grew louder, 
and the underlying hum of conversation hung over the area, one of the women from the mall rushed out to the microphone. I've just been informed that Jean Carlisle's limo has arrived at the pavilion. A cheer went through the large crowd. She's on her way in. Peter, now standing against the stage, smiled at Melvin and Curtis and raised his thumbs. Melvin returned the gesture and nodded. When Ricardo had first brought him into this reality, Peter had been certain he would never see Jeannie again. Ladies and gentlemen, the guy in the tuxedo grabbed the mic from the stand. It is the San Marcado Pavilion's honor to host this event. Jean Carlyle's career spans back to the 1980s. Her films have produced a series of successes that have boosted her popularity skyward. Miss Carlyle's latest film, and let me make sure I get this right, is called The Reluctant Bride and has soared at the box office. Harrison Mobley of the Chicago Sun has called Miss Carlyle's performance spectacular. The New York Times' Fred Sibley referred to Miss Carlyle as the premier actress of our time. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure as chairman of the San Juan Capistrano Promotion Committee to extend a warm welcome to Miss Jean Carlyle. Peter breathed erratically as his heart thumped. The fans erupted into a combination of cheers and applause. He tightened his fist to relieve the tension and stood on his toes as everyone turned toward the mall entrance. The spectacle reminded him of a fighter coming down of the aisle to the ring. He caught a glimpse of her hair, still frosted and short, and her wide smile and radiant face came into view. The goosebumps started again, this time all over his body, and he could not prevent tears from streaming down his face. She wore a long red dress, bare at the shoulders, tight at the hips, and had matching gloves up to her elbows. Heavy makeup could not hide her drawn, evenly peaked countenance as she moved toward the stairs. The longing intensified, but something about her bothered him. Jeannie had lost weight, and her skinny, dehydrated appearance made him uneasy. They helped her up the stairs, and she strutted up to the mic and waved at the people below. Thank you! Thank you! She flashed a smile that made Peter grip the edge of the stage. Jeannie tried to acknowledge the different areas of the crowd, and for a second, he thought she had gazed in his direction. Ricardo had transformed her physically into a star, but he saw her as Jeannie Sturgis from Westerly, New York. All his dreams and his family were annihilated by Ricardo and Cibola. Her voice had not changed. This had to be Jeannie. It always gives me pleasure to come to Capistrano, home of the swallows. She peered over the crowd and they applauded again. Like the swallows, I always come back to Capistrano. One of my earliest movies called Motorcycle Revenge, a memorable piece of art, she said as people laughed, had a lot of birds in it. Peter's arms and legs felt numb as he looked up at the woman who had been the mother of his children. His feelings threatened to overtake him and he wanted to run on stage. Her accomplishments could not negate the effects of the drug and alcohol use visible through the smiles. He preferred to think back to the happier days when he called her his wife. I would like to thank the Chamber of Commerce for having me down here again. You know, one of my first public appearances after the release of Pamela's Secret was at this very pavilion, and the box office sales jumped. So this is my good luck place. People often ask me what it's like to be in the movies. Aside from the fans and the popularity, it all boils down to hard work. Not just for me, but for those hundreds of people on the set. It means waking every day at Melvin, four. said Peter as he moved closer. She looks like hell. Very thin, I very tired. They've made her up, but she's still Jeannie. Where what the hell has he done to her? And he's not even here. I'll kill him. I'll kill him. Peter, it's all right, said Melvin, craft. holding his wrist. Very important. He swung back his eyes to Jeannie. Her face mimicked the face of the woman he loved. He had to let her know what had happened, and he had the compulsive urge to speak with her. He had to remove her from Ricardo's web. Well, that's a good question. One of Jeannie's aides handed her a bottle of water. Thank you. She clutched the bottle with shaking hands. The question was whether working on a movie compares with any other job. Yes. 
She paused and then smiled, bringing some laughter. Seriously, I think anyone who works has that common bond. You can't discount somebody just because they don't enjoy national publicity. People get up every morning and go to their jobs with little fanfare, and they perform whatever it is they are required to do, but they never receive adulation for those services. I'm fortunate that I do. What's Ricardo like? asked a woman in the front row. Peter watched her eyes tighten as if she were fighting to control her thoughts. You know, I get that question often. Ricardo is a person who doesn't change in the setting that he's in. Yeah, said Melvin. He's a bastard no matter where he is. Peter smiled, but his eyes were fixed on Jeannie. Ricardo is a professional. There isn't anything Ricardo won't do to make a film a success. The same woman called out again. Any children in the wings? Oh, God, no, she said, sending a jolt through Peter's body. I think as a professional, you have to place your priorities, and bringing children into this world at this time for me is an impossibility. I'm not saying I don't like kids, I do. Peter crunched his teeth and Curtis squeezed through the crowd. She looks like she's under a lot of stress. Melvin nodded. She's in the pressure cooker, that's for damn sure. She looks older than them magazine pictures, said Curtis. Peter stared at her. I know. Jeannie took a sip of water. Yes, next question. I have a question, Peter called out. As if in slow motion, Jeannie lowered the bottle and pan left. She raised up her hand, shielding out the bright light, and looked down at Peter. Her eyes caught his eyes, and her brow furrowed as she tilted her head. She looked as if she recognized him and when she leaned forward, she sent a genuine smile into his very soul. Her mouth opened slightly as she looked at him. I'm sorry, you, you have a question? Yes, yes, yes. She gently pursed her lips as if she were trying to capture some fleeting thought. Then she smiled again and took a couple of steps toward him. And? How are you, Jeannie? She did not dismiss the question, but moved closer. Well, I guess I'm doing all right. She looked out at the crowd. If you'll excuse us, she said, and laughter broke out. But now she stood only a few feet away from Peter, her hands in a praying position on the glossy white mic. I just had a marvelous time at my home in Puerto Vallarta. The weather was, well, warm, and there were no studio demands. I... Do we know each other? Peter wanted to hold her as sweet sadness swept over him. She should have recognized him right away if she were his wife, yet he intrigued this woman despite the dimensional change. Do we know each other? Well, I'm beginning to wonder, she said briefly, glancing back to the crowd. And to answer your question, I'm fine. I'm all right. She turned again, moving back to her original position. But before she stopped, she gazed back at him one more time. Okay, a couple of more questions and then we'll be signing whatever it is you want us to sign. A woman with blonde hair and black-rimmed glasses whispered in her ear, And talk about the Carlisle line of fine cosmetics, of course. We want to keep our sponsors happy. Now, next question. Did you make a million dollars for this picture, The Reluctant Bride? Asked a man in back. A million, too. She held her mic and looked back to where Peter had been standing, but he had moved next to Melvin and Curtis. Peter, I don't think she knows you as her husband. Peter spoke softly. I understand. I know she's not really Jeannie. It's odd. I still love her. How could I not love her? Peter fixed a smile but looked back toward her. I want to go to that autograph thing. You're setting yourself up to be hurt, Peter. She doesn't know who the hell you are. She's become an actress, but maybe she's hiding the fact she knows me. Melvin shook his head. The old Melvin would have lit a cigarette at this point. Peter, the best damn thing we can do now is leave. Go back to my house in Wyoming. Then we can use all our resources to find Cibola. Curtis shrugged his shoulders as Peter, with a subtle smile, moved forward. He waited until Jeannie had finished speaking and then followed the crowd across the pavilion to a small green and white striped tent under draped cosmetic posters. He found a place in line, but did not know what he would say to her. Melvin and Curtis approached the slow-moving line a few times and then decided to walk through the pavilion. Peter had trouble seeing Jeannie until the line dwindled. From a closer angle, he tried to study her earthy eyes and smooth skin. He imagined caressing her face and holding her in his arms. 
Two people in line now separated him from this other genie, married to Ricardo. She slowly looked up, catching a glimpse of Peter, and again she smiled, but she appeared confused. Peter did not return the smile. Her eyes grew moist and darted about, and she tried being sociable to the woman ahead of him. She fidgeted and alternated glances at him as he prepared to meet her. The woman veered away and Peter stepped forward. Jeannie looked up, wringing her hands with a befuddled recognition as she seemed to wrap herself in his eyes. She spoke slowly in the same familiar voice. I could swear to God that I know you, but we've never met, have we? My name is Peter. Her lips gently curled upward. Peter? She extended her hand. I'm Jean. Her warm and smooth skin enticed him. Jean? Are you from here? Do you live in Southern California? No. Peter pressed his lips together, thinking of Westerly and the kids. He fought the surging sadness. No one has ever asked me how I was doing. I mean, personally. You look tired, Jeannie. He continued to hold her hand. She smiled broadly. Peter, perceptive. You all right? He looked around the crowd and then leaned forward. You need to talk about it? You, you seem so familiar. Somehow, I don't believe this. Maybe I do need to talk. I shouldn't be doing this. She giggled and then stared at him again. Listen, we're doing some preliminary shoots out at the studio. Let me have Sybil get you a pass. She turned to one of the gray-haired women behind her. I need Sybil over here. A few people in line complained about the delay. The same blonde woman who had whispered something in her ear on stage now approached. She wore thin, dark-rimmed glasses and had a small frame. Jeannie muttered something to her. The woman studied Peter for a moment before she moved back through the crowd. Jeannie looked up. Peter, Sybil is getting you a pass. We start those preliminary shoots on Monday. I would like you to be my guest on the set. Really? Honestly, I don't do this all the time. If you don't want me to come over there, I understand. I don't want to get you in trouble. No, 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 it's okay. She briefly held his hand again. Sybil returned with a brightly colored green envelope and handed it to Peter. Jeannie nervously ran her lip along her teeth as she gazed up at him. Peter squeezed her hand. Thank you, Jeannie. My pleasure. I'll see you Monday, Peter. She released his hand and looked around. Oh, the photographers would love to start snapping pictures here. Sure, I understand. See you then, okay? He nodded and held the envelope. Goodbye, Jeannie. Goodbye, Peter. It was nice. So very nice to meet you. The next person, oblivious to the exchange, stepped forward. Jeannie began talking. Peter walked away, staring at the envelope and wondered about her interest. He sidestepped into the mall, and as he turned to check the booth, Jeannie slowly looked up and their eyes met again. She parted her lips and waved. He backed up and gently raised his hand, mystified by his good fortune because he knew he would see her again. The analytical Melvin figured out what Ricardo did, leaving both Peter and Melvin with conscious memories of the old reality. Peter is determined to at least meet the genie of this universe, the Hollywood starlet who lives in California. Maybe like he and Melvin, she will remember the old times, or perhaps not. It's the metaphor of how people change, just in one timeline. I'm Robert P. Fitton, stepping on the plane and heading out on a rough flight out to Hollywood. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.